Our New Testament reading is from Romans. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death came through sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. Sin was indeed in the world before the law, but sin is not reckoned when there is no law. Yet death exercised dominion from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sins were not like the transgressions of Adam, who is a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died through the one man's trespass, much more surely have the grace of God and the free gift in the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for the many. And the free gift is not like the effect of the one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brings justification. If, because of the one man's trespass, death exercised dominion through that one, much more surely will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness exercise dominion in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading is from Matthew. Hear the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Matthew. Glory to you, O Lord. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. He fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and afterwards he was famished. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, One does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple, saying to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. And he said to him, All these I will give to you, if you will fall down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God, and serve only him. Then the devil left him, and suddenly angels came and waited on him. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Well, before we get into the sermon, just wanted to add one more follow-up announcement as Ryan helpfully you know, reminded us all that our, our last worship service here in West Catholic will be uh, at the end of March, on March 26th. I'm hoping that by next week, I'll be able to give you an exciting update on a next step over at the Woodland property around like what this pivot for this year will actually will actually yield for us. So um, we've got some some exciting potential that hopefully will be confirmed in this coming week, and I'm looking forward to being able to give you uh, on next Sunday some actually specific information about the next the next move over at the Woodland property and what activating it the next step further is going to look like. So stay tuned, and I invite you to please pray for our consistory and for just all the processes involved, because I think we've got some, some real potential to see some exciting things happen even in this calendar year. 
at Woodland. So um, with that in mind, let me, uh, would you join, with, join me in prayer? Our God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for this community of faith, for this family that we are and have been um, and continue to be. We thank you for the ways in which you meet us and provide for us and sustain us and lead us. Uh, and we pray now that as we sit with your scriptures and as we um, listen for your voice, we pray that you would speak. Um, and we pray that you would give us your spirit so that our hearts would be soft, that our minds would be open, that our attention would be rightly given to you. Uh, and I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. You're our rock. You're our redeemer. We need your help. And so we ask for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. And so as Ryan mentioned, uh, this Lent, we're using this resource really a across multiple aspects of the life of our church, this resource from Kate Bowler over at Duke Divinity School called Bless the Lent We Actually Have. Uh, it's, a, it's a resource that you can link to on our website. If you just go to our, our church website, we have a Lent page under the Grow column. You can find the, the Lent page that has links to the resource. But because of a grant from the Lilly Foundation, Kate Bowler and her crack team over at Duke Divinity have been able to provide this resource for free. So you can go there and just download. It's, an, it's a resource for individuals to use. It's a resource for groups to use. And there's even a sermon guide resource for me to use so that we can all kind of be across the life of our church this Lent, having kind of one big ongoing conversation and, and kind of vibing on the same wavelength of this idea of blessing the Lent we actually have, which is really a lot about accepting the reality of our humanity. And not only, not only accepting the reality of our humanity, but also being able to receive the blessing God gives us in those spaces of our limitations, in the spaces of our imperfections, of our curiosities, the things we don't know, our suffering, all those things, right? And so each, each week we get a theme, and it's a kind of beatitude, uh, not from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, although a couple of them actually are, but, um, but it's it, a, a beatitude of sorts, and this one that we have this week is Blessed Are the Imperfect. That's where we begin in our Lenten series. Blessed are the imperfect. What a thing to say, right? Much less what a thing to believe. I want us to think for a moment about our own imperfections. I want you to think about your imperfections. What are they? And how do you deal with them? How do you feel about your imperfections? Let me ask it this way. Let's, let's, let's focus the microscope a little bit more. Which of your imperfections exhausts you the most? Either because you spend time and energy and resources trying to perfect or at least improve this imperfection, or because of how hard you work to conceal this imperfection, to not let that show up as part of your presentable public self, or to not let it show up in the minds of other people as they think about you and how they might describe you. I think of the words of the psalmist in Psalm 127, talking about eating the bread of anxious toil, right? 
It's talking about building the house of the Lord and those who do that apart from the Lord, labor in vain, eating the bread of anxious toil is the phrase. But I think about this work of perfectionism, this hamster wheel that we are often so, so find ourselves on because of really the culture that we live in teaches us to get on this hamster wheel of perfecting ourselves. If you were here with us on, or if you were with us on Ash Wednesday, um, we were reflecting on this, this image of the fire, right? And what it means for us to be ashes and dust. And we don't like to think of ourselves as being ashes and dust. We don't like to think of ourselves as life apart from God is a fire that has gone out. We prefer to, our, to think of ourselves as a fire that's, you know, glowing, just not burning at a full blaze. That what we really need is just another log of one sort or another to put on that fire to get it burning again. Whether it's that log that's going to make us better, right? The, the self-help log, or whether it's the log that will help us escape our reality, the way out, the thing that will numb us, the thing that will distract us, the thing that will give us something else to do to entertain us, take us out of the moment. The ways that we deal with our imperfect selves are many, and often the ways that we do deal with our imperfect selves is exhausting. It's the anxious toil of perfectionism. Well, in this resource that we're using, um, this Bless the Lent we actually have, Kate Bowler's crack team of preacher, pastor, research assistants have written a wonderful little reflection on the connection between our perfectionism and Jesus's temptations in the wilderness. This text that we just read. I just want to share this with you. This comes from Brenda Thompson and Jessica Ritchie, who work there at Duke with Kate Bowler. They write this. At its core, the vain labor of perfectionism is an attempt to manage our pain, shame, and fear. The temptation of perfectionism is similar to the temptation that Jesus encountered in the desert. If you never want to feel pain, then turn this stone into bread so your body never feels broken. If you never want to experience shame, then control the world with political power. And in parentheses, their words, not mine, because that always works out for politicians. If you never want to experience fear, then call upon the angels to wrap you in bubble wrap and stay far from the ledge. All you have to do is manage all risk and control everyone and everything in the world. Easy, right? Yet the illusion of perfection is so tempting. After all, the tempter essentially tells Jesus, you deserve better than the hand God has dealt you, wandering alone, hungry, powerless in the desert. When we are stuck in lives we didn't pick, stuck in bodies that break for no reason we can easily discern, stuck with grief we can't move past. We can begin to believe that if we just try harder, then things will be better. But Lent is the season of repentance, a chance to acknowledge our limitations, our humanity, our failures, our sins, and recognize our utter dependence on God for our every breath recognize our utter dependence upon God for our every breath. You know, when I read this passage in Matthew 4 about Jesus being tempted in the wilderness, I think the thing that impresses me the most, 
the thing that strikes me as maybe the most profound is not that he triumphs where we fail. That's a big part of it. But it's how he does it that I think is the most striking. You'll notice he doesn't beat the tempter with some sort of power or some sort of flex move. He beats temptation through an act of dependence upon God. It's an act of surrender, not an act of conquering. That is the act by which Jesus actually overcomes temptation and the tempter in the moment of wilderness. And I want us to just appreciate this scene for a minute. If you would, just there on page nine, that gospel reading, you've got it in front of you from Matthew 4. Let's just take a brief tour of this scene and enter into it with Jesus. So then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word led up is way too milk toast for what we need to get from this passage. Jesus was launched into the wilderness. So this is the moment, right, where after this, this follows right after the baptism of Jesus, this moment where you see Jesus in the Jordan River and the father is over there, like, you know, the sky's open. The father's declaring, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. The spirit descends like a dove anointing Jesus to be the Messiah of Israel and the savior of the world. And he emerges from these waters of baptism as this beloved of God. And we're there and there's this moment where you go, okay, what will the life of the beloved look like? And it's like, okay, here we go. Here's hashtag so blessed life, right? Launched into the wilderness, the parched earth that can't sustain life, where he has to live without food for 40 days and 40 nights. And then in his famished and emaciated state, encounters the temptation of all temptations, the tempter of all tempters. He's weak, and the moment is loaded with significance and power. So there he is. He's fasting 40 days and 40 nights. Now, this is what we enter into in our own little microwaves during Lent, right? So Lent is this 40-day season plus the Sundays, so it's like 46 all told, because the Sundays are little mini Easter's in the middle of Lent. But Lent is this 40-day season of fasting and repentance and self-examination and prayerful recalibration as we prepare for the great Easter feast. And it's built on this 40-day season that Jesus experiences in the wilderness. It's a way that we, in our own little micro way, enter into that season with Jesus. We enter into the sufferings of Christ. We enter into his experience of humanity in this way, remembering that our humanity is connected to his, that our destiny is connected to his, that our triumph over evil and temptation is connected to his victory. And so we give up things like chocolate or beer or social media or whatever, whatever little thing. Maybe it's a big thing for you that you've given up. Most of us are trying to enter in in some small way that's real and meaningful. But Jesus is going without food. 
like all of it, right? All the food. And he's been doing this for 40 days. That's the fast that he keeps. And he keeps it through this whole time and finds himself on the end, at the end of it, not at an Easter moment yet, but face to face with the tempter, right? This personification of evil that we meet in the scriptures, the devil, the Satan, the accuser, what have you. This one who represents all that opposes God and God's purposes in the world. And here Jesus comes face to face with this tempter. And he's tempted in these three particular ways. And what we see in each of these is Jesus' response is not just out of his own strength or something like that, but he's responding with the very words of God. And lest I get a scolding from Cindy, I should tell you they're words of Deuteronomy, <laughs> her favorite book. Jesus responds to temptation with the very word of God. It's an act of dependence. It's not an act of strength in and of himself. So what's happening in this moment? So Jesus here as this one who's anointed in the spirit to be the Messiah of Israel, he's, he's received this calling, this vocation, this identity, essentially to be the new human being in and through whom God is going to make all things new and good. There's a story that starts all the way in the earliest chapters of the Bible that's sort of cyclical where God has this habit of picking someone and starting over because it just keeps going wrong. And that story, as you, as you read it, it just unfolds all the way to Jesus, right? But it's got a, there's a lot in this text that reminds us of the earliest chapters of the story. Or if you just open up your Bible, page one, you get the creation story of God making the world. And by the time you get to page two and three, you're basically seeing God making humanity and placing humanity in this garden that's lush and good. It's this reflection of God's dominion. He's giving these human beings this royal vocation to, to rule and to steward and to bless the earth, to basically live under God and over creation as rulers who bring forth life, as gardeners and stewards. And the story of these human beings who inherit a garden quickly becomes a story of human beings who squander their inheritance and leave behind a wilderness. But the story of Jesus doesn't begin in a garden because the story of Jesus begins in the wilderness left behind by everyone who's come before. But the legacy of Jesus is going to be not the garden inheritance that leaves behind a wilderness, but Jesus is going to inherit a wilderness and leave behind a garden. He's going to inherit a wilderness and leave behind a city. He's going to inherit a wilderness and leave behind the all things new, the peace, the wholeness, the flourishing life of the world as God intended it. And so his ministry starts in the river. It starts with this baptismal moment where he is marked as God's beloved. And then the next phase is he's launched into the parched earth of wilderness to basically take on, head on, this same evil force. But instead of being a relatively easy thing to do, like don't eat that thing, it's a really hard thing to do. 
when you have no energy, no calories left because you haven't eaten for 40 days, you're in a desert, you're probably thirsty and hungry at the same time, you're probably exhausted, he probably weighs 90 pounds, and he's there and comes face to face with active, brutal temptation that plays on his every craving that are not bad cravings. The guy needs food. But he's not going to take it from that source. He's not going to take it from that source. And the thing about this that is so remarkable to me is that if you just put yourself in Jesus' shoes and read the room, if you're using your eyes to understand your situation, everything about the circumstances that Jesus would find himself in would say, you know what? Uh, this job that God's given you is not okay. And uh, you probably could do better and probably should do better. But Jesus in that moment understands that he has been given a very unique calling to be the Messiah of Israel and the savior of the world. And enduring these temptations in this wilderness is part of the, part of the gig. And here's where God gives him every grace that he needs in that moment to do that work that will ultimately carry him all the way forward toward the cross, right? We'll find that the tempter's gonna end up leaving Jesus in the wilderness, wait for a more opportune time. Well, he's gonna get it. And it comes at the cross when Jesus himself dies under the weight of all of this wilderness brokenness and sin in the world. And he'll rise from that. He'll win the victory again by casting himself upon the care of God. Jesus in this wilderness is in an anti-Eden world. And what we find in this moment of Jesus is he, he rises to the occasion of becoming the curse reverser, of being the temptation resister, of being the evil conqueror. And he does all of that through weakness. That's the remarkable thing. He doesn't flex and win. He surrenders to God instead of to the tempter. One of the hardest things for us to believe, I think, is that apart from God, we are ashes and dust. We keep wanting to add one more log to the fire. But what we really need is for God to revive us. What we really need is for God to meet us to make us alive with Christ, to actually revive us and renew us and give us a life that we could never possibly make for ourselves. And we need God to do that for the whole world too. All the systems, all the structures, all the societies, all the agriculture, all the weather. We need God, we need an act of God, we need a work of God that we can't possibly affect to completion. Jesus wins by surrender. David Benner, in his book, Surrender to Love, one of my favorites that I've quoted many times, has this beautiful statement about the paradox between the abundant life God offers us in Christ and how we take hold of it. He writes this. Paradoxically, the abundant life promised us in Christ comes not from grasping, but from releasing. It comes not from striving, but from relinquishing. It comes not so much from taking as from giving. Surrender is the foundational dynamic of Christian freedom. Surrender of my efforts to live my life outside of the grasp of God's love and surrender to God's gracious spirit. 
Surrender is being willing rather than willful. It is a readiness to trust that is based in love. It is relaxing and letting go. It is floating in the river that is God's love. And then Benner goes on to tell this story that's really cool. He tells a story of this time that he was at a spiritual retreat. I can't remember where, somewhere in the Pacific Islands. And it was a retreat for spiritual directors. So everyone there is an adult who has spent many, many years listening to God and helping other people listen to God. And oddly, not one of them knows how to swim. They're at this waterside place. And so they're there. It's a group of adults who are all Pacific Islanders. Not one of them can swim. And so one of the things they do at this retreat is swimming lessons uh, so that they can learn to swim. And so he talks about this, this moment where you've got a bunch of these adult non-swimmers. And, he, and, and what, what's so shocking to him is that they were the best swim class you could possibly have. Because the thing about learning to swim, this counterintuitive piece, if you've ever learned to swim or if you can remember when you learned to swim, one of the biggest things you have to give up is you're striving to stay up. You have to let the water hold you, which means you have to believe that it will, right? That's one of the hardest things is getting over that hump. But you take a group of people who have spent their entire adult lives practicing surrender, you take a group of people who've spent their entire adult lives opening themselves to God and practicing the trust fall into God's arms. They know all about what it means to just float and be held by God. And they had no problem first try floating on the water because they're practiced in the way of trust. An incredible illustration, I think, because as you and I think about the way we live with our own imperfections, you think about the way that we strive, the ways that we grasp, the way that we keep going on the hamster wheel of trying to manage and manage and manage and manage, improve, 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 and hide and hide and hide and hide. We don't know how to float. But the invitation to us as imperfect people is not to be perfected soon. It's to allow God to hold us in all of our imperfection and to simply rest in Christ and be held. The transformation is God's work. And that's not to say there's not plenty of room for us to grow. Of course there is. Not to say there's plenty of good work to learn how to manage your weaknesses. Of course there is. But at the core of your being, as you think about how you relate to yourself and relate to God, as you recognize your own imperfection in that context, will you hand over to Jesus that anxious toil of perfectionism and practice resting in him, floating in that river of God's love. This is what I believe Augustine meant when he talked about his sin as this happy fault, this imperfection that allows the occasion to receive mercy and to recognize oneself as in need of it. This, uh, this happy fault, this problem with me that never lets me be sufficient in and of myself. It never lets me just go off and do my own thing 
because my own thing will never be good enough. It will never be actually what I crave or desire. It will never actually satisfy me. It will never actually satisfy the needs of the parched earth in which we live. But God will. And he invites us to float. And so as we go from here, a little bit of homework, if you're willing. Do a little inventory of your own imperfections. Doesn't have to be all of them. Don't do an exhaustive inventory. That sounds dreadful. Do a, do a little inventory, like just, you know, top three or something, right? The things that exhaust you most, or maybe just a big one. Maybe you can draw a circle around one big one that looms large in your mind. It's just the thing that keeps your inner critical voice holding that megaphone. Or it's the thing that keeps you just exhausting yourself, concealing it or just exhausting yourself trying to get free from it. And as you name it, and name it, as you name it, practice in prayer, taking that to God, not as something that's yours to conquer, or yours to perfect, or yours to conceal, but go to God with that imperfection as a meeting place as a place where Jesus is actually waiting for you because he's there, he's well acquainted with it, and he wants you to be too. That place in your soul, that place in your disquieted heart, that place in your mental chatter, that place in your daily or weekly habits, rhythms, Jesus is waiting for you there. And he invites you to meet him there. And when you do, in that space of your imperfection, rest, float. Just let him hold you. Blessed are the imperfect, for they shall know rest you pray with me. Our God, we need your help, and we thank you that you promised to give it. We thank you for Jesus, the one who has kept the fast, who has endured temptation and resisted in all the ways that we have failed to do so. God, I pray that as we continue in our Lenten fasts, that you would meet us in the spaces of our imperfection, and that you would make us to know the strength of your love that envelops us, the presence of your spirit who holds us. And I pray that you would give us the courage and the trust to simply float, to give up all the anxious toil of our striving, and instead to be held by you. God, would you give us every grace and every gift we need to know the life and the love that you give us in Christ. In whose name we pray, amen.